But always, do not forget this, Winston, always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always, at every moment, it will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face. Forever. Oh, that really sounds double-plus unenjoyable. I guess... You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Comrade Jonas. And I'm Comrade Christian. Hi. This week we read a great classic of dystopian literature, of sci-fi literature, of political literature, George Orwell's 1984. 1984 takes place in, well, 1984, which for us is the distant past, but when the book was published, it was the future, a Dystopian society has replaced democracy in England, a society that is led by Big Brother, a dictator figure that might not even exist. We see this very restrictive and frankly horrible world through the eyes of Winston Smith, a worker in the Ministry of Truth, which ironically is forging historical documents. Winston is something of a free thinker. He really hates the regime of the party and of Big Brother. And despite the crushing realities that he has to face, there are some escapes. He writes down his thoughts. He even meets a girl, Julia, and begins an affair with her. And he also might have found a soulmate in O'Brien, a upper member of the party who seems to share some of Winston's ideas and who seems to be connected to the resistance led by the mysterious Goldstein. However, it doesn't end well for Winston. The regime wins in the end and Winston is apprehended, tortured and crushed in his very existence. So beware, 1984 is not the most optimistic book to read. The book was written not in 1984, but in 1948, see what he did there, by George Orwell. He was a socialist, at least somewhat, we'll come to that. He had been active for many years as a journalist, he had been fighting in the Spanish Civil War, and he had published several books already, Down and Out in London and Paris, and Animal Farm being the most famous ones. The novel was published when he was already in hospital, dying of tuberculosis. He died shortly afterwards and never saw the great success and the great impact that it had. That actually is the first thing I would like to talk to you about, Christian. The novel has had a great impact. Uh, at some point, there were two television shows on British TV that took their titles from the pages of 1984. Big Brother, obviously, and Room 101. So how do we explain this great lasting impact of such a relatively slim volume? I think one important thing is that Orwell finds the right words to describe this this topic, society. Um, he seems to be similar to Shakespeare in that degree, that many words and cultural concepts that we even use nowadays come from the pages of 1984. Just the title alone has become a synonym for dystopic surveillance societies. Big Brother, you mentioned that, Double Think, 2 plus 2 equals 5, 
all of these concepts are used and mostly separated from the pages of the book. So it's interesting that he seems to have found a very suitable way of describing certain tendencies in society. Now, it is really interesting that 1984 has become the poster child for this dystopic view on society, because there are other books that go in a similar direction. Orwell has been heavily influenced by a Russian novel, We, by Yevgeny Samyatin. There's also, obviously, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, which is often described as a kind of sibling to 1984. But all of these dystopic novels do not seem to have had the same effect as 1984. And I actually don't know an answer why Orwell's vision is the most important or prevalent one. Oh, that's good, because I have one. Oh, then <laughs> please tell us. You've already mentioned Shakespeare, and I think it comes back to the same thing. Shakespeare, I think, at least partly, still works so well for us today because he was a great judge of psychology, of human spirit, of soul, if soul is a word you would like to use. So is Orwell. And the things that they write about are universal throughout time. The plot of 1984, with the writing of the diary, with the illicit sexual affair, with the torture in Room 101, that is secondary. That's not actually what the book is about. The book is about the psychological impact of the structure that these people exist in. And psychology is something that fascinates people always to this day. Our inner lives are still very similar. And so now when we encounter frightening systems that remind us even just slightly of the ones described in 1984. It's obvious that the novel will come up in our minds. That is actually not a bad explanation. It, Thank you. I know. It explains at least how Orwell could get away with so much gobbledygook and hogwash regarding the political system he's describing. Because how this dystopic society in Airstrip 1, how Britain is called in this world, part of Oceania, quite frankly, it's doesn't make any sense at all. Neither from a political viewpoint, nor from a structural viewpoint, a totalitarian regime like this is really nonsensical. And Orwell spends so much time trying to tell us how the system works. There's a whole section where Winston Smith reads a book about how the state and the party are constructed. And I had to skip that whole part. Not only is it deadly boring, but also... It's so unrealistic. Many people have remarked upon that Aldous Huxley had the much better idea about how a dystopic society would probably come into place in the real world, that it's not a political impetus to subjugate the people, but rather the apathy of the people themselves, which creates this kind of horrible world to come. I would argue, though, that it's not as unrealistic as you've presented it, because Orwell had a frightening knack for getting things right, for making true predictions. About what exactly? Well, Christopher Hitchens, a journalist, a great admirer of George Orwell, <sighs> a man who I... Yes, I know, I talk a lot about him, <sighs> though we usually edit it out of the podcast. He said that it's fascinating to think that the novel was published in 1949, and that is the same year that the Republic of North Korea was founded. And when you go to North Korea, as Hitchens did as one of the few Westerners, you wonder, did they use it as a manual? Because the way that the people are subjugated in North Korea, not just physically, but mentally as well, 
is eerily similar to 1984. And when you read stories of refugees who have managed to escape North Korea, they really are as brainwashed as the people in 1984. They really think that all the lies that the government tells them are true. All these things that we laugh about, ha ha, oh, Kim Jong-un is a bit chubby, ha ha, that's real for them. All the great stories about him are not as amusing when you're in the country. That is probably true. But then again, in North Korea, you probably don't have a large amount of proles in the population. Yeah, true. Able to live however they would like to live because they don't matter. The proles, the working class, however you would like to call them. Basically, Orwell's view on them is kind of a, a fascinated one. I mean, he mentioned several times in the novel, or maybe it's Winston Smith's view, that the proles might be the future of the revolution. But since the end is so bleak and the view on the proles is so entirely negative, the proles are basically mindless, trivial creatures and no one cares about them. And that is so much different from a an actual totalitarian regime. This is, I think, Orwell's privilege speaking. His, I don't know, disappointed socialist tendencies that he couldn't do some kind of well-minded revolution in England because you had those horrible working class people to deal with. I don't know too much about his political stance. But you've just summed it up very well. It is curious that... He was a socialist or called himself a socialist, but at the same time, the view of 1984 is an extremely conservative one. Hmm. He did go to Eton as well. Now, he, he did get a scholarship for Eton, and he described his family as upper lower middle class, but still, he did go to Eton. And I think that is also quite interesting, that when we think of Big Brother and so on, we think of a, an entirely totalitarian regime and many aspects of the world that Orwell describes are like that, but only for the members of the party. It's kind of like you, you're asked to take pity on those poor, poor middle and upper class people who are subjugated so much while the working class people really don't care at all. They're allowed to have a lot of sex, so who, wh why worry about them? Yeah, we'll come back to the sex later on, because... After the recording. <laughs> But I think we cannot be too harsh on Orwell for failing to correctly predict what a totalitarian regime actually works like. Uh, because you were the one that said that he was eerily precise with his predictions, so... Yes, now let me apply a cure-all argument to all the cases where he wasn't. Remember when we were at Neuromancer and we had Oliver on the podcast? And he said something very important, I think. Uh, he said that science fiction isn't meant to be prophetic. It's not meant to predict the future. It's meant to be about what the future might be from a certain point in time. So this is not a book about 1984, obviously. It's neither a book about 2016. It's a book about 1948. And for that time... Orwell is really very insightful. It's a time just after the Second World War, so we've seen the great fascist regimes rise and fall. The socialist regime is still in full swing. They still haven't seen the worst of the Stalinist terror, really. 
But he is writing about England, and that is another curious fact here. That it could happen here. It could have happened in Britain. That's it, basically what he's saying. It really couldn't. And that is really a good point that you bring up. The post-war era in Britain, where we saw a Labour government which replaced someone else who was called Winston, Winston Churchill. And I mean, that Ooh, damn. in itself is quite indicative that Winston Smith shares the same first name with Churchill. And the post-war years were in a very harsh time for Britain, much harder than the war. In the war, you knew what you were fighting for. But after the war, in the years of scarcity, the austerity era, where people really felt that Britain wasn't the top dog in the world anymore. Many of the descriptions that Orwell uses seem to hark back to that era. The rundown houses, the destroyed, bombed out parts of London, the food restrictions that he can't get real coffee or real chocolate. Basically, if you see it like that, he is condemning this era, which is the creation of modern Britain. It is also the time when Britain was, of course, saddled with a horrible terroristic socialist regime, that of the NHS, which they're only now being liberated from. Yeah, exactly. If you read it like that, Orwell and David Cameron would have been best buddies, basically. Now, now, come on, come on. Orwell was interested in pigs, but not in that way. <laughs> But that is really interesting that despite the notion of a totalitarian regime, which is partly inspired by Stalinism and partly inspired by Nazism, this is very much about England and the kind of counter model that Orwell presents, even though it's hopeless in the face of Big Brother, is a very traditional view of England as a pastoral landscape. A landscape that, on the one hand, is about the English countryside. Winston remembers the golden country, as he puts it, a kind of idolized landscape which he associates with nostalgic thoughts about his childhood and which he also connects to the nature where he first has sex with Julia. And on the other hand, an important factor is history, the history of England, not the artificial history produced by the Ministry of Truth, but the history of, of culture. There is a very, very unsubtle dream that Winston has, where he thinks about Julia being naked in the countryside, and he wakes up, and the word he says upon waking up is Shakespeare. And that is... A bit on the nose. Yeah, it's very much on the nose. And on the other hand, an old rhyme, an old children's rhyme about the different clocks and churches of London plays an important role. And it also is associated with this notion of Englishness, English history, English culture, English language, which is destroyed by this totalitarian regime, but which still has a traditional value. That is all about being English and the English countryside and did those feet in ancient time and the House of Parliament. And that is Winston Churchill's wet dream, basically. It's really interesting to read 1984 like that because it really shows you, well, firstly, the party, the villains are called Ingsoc, English Socialism. So... Yeah, it would be safe to say that Orwell probably was really disillusioned with his former comrades by the end of his life. It's also interesting to see that Britain is not part of Europe. Oceania, this new super state, is North America, and Britain is Airstrip 1, a little outlier of this really. Whereas Eurasia is the enemy, at least at the beginning of the novel. Although... 
Ingstock is the common ideology for the whole of Oceania. So apparently England plays a larger role than Airstrip 1. Oh, so they took over the old colonies again. And it's really interesting to think of Churchill again, who did demand a United States of Europe, but didn't want Britain to be part of it. And reading it in a time where Britain is thinking about maybe leaving the EU, it becomes strangely opposite again, in a very depressing way. You've already mentioned history. That's something that really interested me as well. Winston works in the Ministry of Truth, which, of course, is actually concerned with spreading lies. And he works in the history department. So his job is to alter historical records, to bring them in line with the party's official history, with Big Brother's official history. So that is one thing that is really presented as a controlling mechanism. When you control a people's history, you control their present That is actually one of the big quotes in the book that is repeated uh, several times as well. That if you control the past, you control the future. And if you control the present, you control the past. There's two other mechanisms of control as well. The most famous one probably is language. The party introduces a new kind of language called Newspeak which is rationalized, as they said, but actually the aim of Newspeak is to eliminate any opportunity for dissent by eliminating the words for expressing dissent or for committing thought crime, as they call it. This is another really impactful concept. It's interesting how often you hear the allegation of Newspeak thrown around in internet forums, where usually conservative critics of modern-day linguistic initiatives, such as being more aware of gender issues in language, accuse the proponents of these initiatives of trying to introduce new speak. So again, Orwell somehow stands in the conservative corner. But on the other hand, for all his connections to Shakespeare and traditional language, he's very skeptical of the power of literature. The Ministry of Truth also has a whole department that is for writing novels. And the novels are being written not by people, but by machines. They take certain tropes and motives and write the same story over and over again, all in a very Marxist sense, just to entertain the people and establish the power structure of the party and Big Brother. Exactly what Hollywood does today. Wake up, sheeple. That really is an interesting aspect that while Orwell is writing against this, he seems to be kind of dubious about the power of literature. But also the linguistic component of Newspeak might be a very powerful concept that is still used nowadays, but there's a whole appendix that Orwell has written after the novel. And again, reading about the concepts, it's so ridiculous. It, In theory, that might work. In practice, it just sounds horrible. And that's a common feature of science fiction and fantasy authors, isn't it? That you have to introduce some ridiculous terms and sometimes you go a bit overboard, make up entire languages and it all becomes a bit ridiculous. But it's still influential. So that's something that Orwell can claim as well. We've stayed on the intellectual side so far, but as we mentioned, there is quite a bit of sex in the novel as well. Not just to titillate the readers, but actually sex is a political statement as well. Because another big change that Jonas mentioned is that sex is supposed to be entirely devoid of pleasure. Sex is just there to produce new children to be part of Big Brother's political system. 
And actually, that is also quite interesting that the children are seen as horrible. And Winston's neighbor, for example, who's very pro party and big brother, is betrayed by his own daughter, even though he probably hasn't done anything wrong. There is an anti sex league, a kind of semi official organization. So when Winston begins his affair with Julia, it is even mentioned that it's not that much about love, that he is kind of glad when she tells him that she has had sex with many other people before, because the sex itself is an anti establishment act. Having sex just to have pleasure is fighting the regime. It's really just fucking for fuck's sake. That ultimately. Makes Orwell a bit of a romantic, doesn't it? It's about unnatural things made by humans, which are evil, opposed to natural things. Idyllic pastoral country life. Sexual pleasure as a primal urge, as a primal pleasure. Something that cannot be extinguished. This spark of genius that is within us and that gives all of us the capacity to resist this horrible world that we live in. Especially, of course, in women, because women in this world are either frigid bitches who won't have sex or entirely primal emotional creatures who are all about sex. Honestly, George Orwell's view of women is also very conservative. That Julia is described in terms of being all about sensual pleasures, not thinking too much about the political or social consequences of her doing. She's all about just doing what she needs to do. While Orwell could be seen as a romantic, his view of sex as something liberating is heavily marred by his view of women. It is notable that the first time that Winston thinks about sex with Julia, he thinks about tying her to a stake, raping her, and then cutting her throat. So finally, it is a return to the enduring topic of rape and sexual abuse that has been going throughout this podcast. Hooray! I did not miss it. Also, the thing that ultimately signals that Winston is broken and that the party has won is, of course, when he shouts out under torture, do it to Julia. Ultimately, he betrays her. And ultimately, he wants her to suffer instead of him. But that may tie back to you claiming that Orwell is a romantic, that ultimately Winston may be in love with Julia and betraying her is all the more horrible. So it's not quite clear how much Orwell believes in the power of sex itself or how he sees sex as a part of romantic love and that as a countermeasure or in the end not countermeasure against the tyranny of Big Brother. I think you could see it both ways. On the one hand, sex is romanticized. It takes place in this pastoral setting of the golden country. On the other hand, the scene where Winston finds out about Julia's promiscuity and he's really glad about it, that is a powerful scene and it is a different kind of romanticism, certainly. Aside from the possible ideological objections, there's another one that I have about the novel and that is a stylistic one. I talked a lot about exposition in previous episodes, especially in Euromancer, which I didn't really like, but I did like the way that it handled exposition. And here we have exactly the other case, where I think that the exposition is so clunky. It is so horrible. Winston walked into Victory Barracks and, ah, so this is where he lives and... This is how the party works, and this is the ministry, this is the other ministry, this is the other ministry, this is their motto. And you just think, okay, there is a much subtler way to do this, there's a much better way to present this story. And as you said, then at the end there's this whole long section where it just reads a book about how the party came to power and how it works. 
Orwell isn't really interested in telling a story. He's interested in the world that he's built. And he just happens to have to tell a story to tell us about this cool world that he made up. But there I think you were right before when you said that he's also not interested in the world, but in the consequences of this world and this political extremism on the minds of people. And I think there is the payoff. The book is divided in three parts, more or less. And the whole last part is the ordeal of Winston in the Ministry of Love, another ironic moniker where he's tortured by O'Brien, whom he trusted. And basically, he's taught to love Big Brother and give up all sense of resistance and identity. And that section, while it is wordy as well, and there are many explanations given by O'Brien, that really hits home. There you get the feeling that maybe hasn't changed nowadays. Room 101, where you're faced with your worst fear, that is something that you can still imagine in political systems nowadays, but not only in political systems, it is the worst thing in the world. And there I think you can forgive Orwell for trying to come up with a world that is consistent, but really, really isn't, because that is really powerful. So let us come to our conclusion then. Is this actually a book you should read? Is this worth your time? I was prepared to say no. I was prepared to hate Orwell. And in the beginning, there are many things that really strengthened my opinion. As a political scientist, I think that Orwell really not only misjudges the future of regimes, totalitarian regimes, but also the time he was living in, his conservative bias, his very verbose and sometimes ridiculous way of portraying the society. But then come the parts where he really wins me over. And as Jonas has mentioned, this is about how people react to and feel in these circumstances. That still gets you. So, yeah, a reluctant, yeah, but you should read 1984. Of course, I cannot say that this is not worth your time. This is a great book. This is a book that will enrich your life if you read it. But should you feel bad if you're one of those people who claim to have read 1984, but actually you haven't? No, you really shouldn't. Because you don't have to. It's a very influential book, but you can exist in a culture without knowing exactly where all the tropes of it come from. And you already have a grasp of 1984. You might not know it, But you do, because it is all around you. If you don't think that this is a book that you'd like to read after hearing our discussion of it, don't feel bad about it. You don't have to. But if you follow Jonas's advice, which I consider to be utterly and totally wrong, what else should people read or might people read if they want something of that old dystopic vibe? I really struggled with coming up with a recommendation for this episode, not because there's so little, but because there's so much. My first thought was, isn't it interesting how Orwell really ignores companies? There's no private industry really in 1984 because it is a socialist regime, a totalitarian socialist nightmare. And this is, of course, not at all what our society is like nowadays. In fact, if there is a big brother nowadays, he's probably called Google or Facebook or Apple. I mean, Apple made an advertisement in 1984, taking credit for the fact that the actual year wasn't as bad as the one described in the novel. And now they are the ones actually collecting our data and doing suspicious things with them. And so my first instinct was to recommend The Circle by Dave Eggers. The problem is, I haven't read The Circle by Dave Eggers, but I'd like to. 
You could also recommend Animal Farm by George Orwell, a much more enjoyable book in my opinion. Or you could recommend another dystopian book like The Hunger Games. Have I ever mentioned that The Hunger Games is one of the best books written in this century? Please, 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 what is your recommendation? Well, my actual recommendation is something very lowbrow. It is Equilibrium from 2003, an action film starring Christian Bale and Sean Bean, a very thinly veiled rip-off of 1984, basically. Instead of Big Brother, it's Father. And Christian Bale plays a cleric, an elite member of the secret police clad in black leather. Hmm, where where have we seen that before? And it is a really stupid film. It is not very sophisticated. Basically, the government is evil, it suppresses individuality, therefore it needs to be fought, and Christian Bale does some awesome kung fu-style moves. But you know what? Okay. I think what all will really hit on with 1984 is a modern kind of myth, something that has entered the DNA of our culture. And therefore, it can be found all over the place, in high literature, in everyday parlance, and yes, even in a really stupid action flick that is simply very enjoyable, because at the end, you get to watch 20 minutes of Christian Bale shooting people in motorcycle helmets. Both our recommendations this time are films, and both times they're films that are thinly veiled versions of 1984. My case, however, it's not so much about the action, it's more about that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness though with a very morbid sense of humor. My recommendation is one of my absolute favorite films of all times, Brazil by Terry Gilliam. The society is very similar to 1984. Even the setting, this kind of faux 40s, 50s setting, seems to remind one of Orwell in many ways. But Gilliam finds the grotesque humor that Orwell really doesn't focus on in such a society, even though his view is still just as bleak and just as hopeless as Orwell's. It is a brilliant film, wonderfully shot, many, many great ideas how to illustrate the struggle of the individual in such a world. So Brazil by Terry Gilliam is my recommendation this time. So those are our recommendations. But what would you recommend? Do you think that we are completely wrong and that 1984 is actually a work of genius and we're just too stupid to get it? If you do, write us some listener mail at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. Betray us to the thought police. You can also get in touch on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And you can find us on iTunes where we would ask you to subscribe, leave a review and rate us five stars. Or write down with Big Brother. I repeat, down with Big Brother. War is peace. And if the Thought Police doesn't get you, you can look forward to our next episode in two weeks' time. And what will we be reading in that episode, Christian? Science fiction seems to be on our minds, maybe because it's the fucking year 2016. Where's my hoverboard? So I thought we could read another classic of sci-fi literature, but one that is much less serious than 1984. The next time we're going to be discussing Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, I'll prepare some of my poetry to read to you. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. As a poli- yeah, let's not talk too much about North Korea because otherwise they might hunt us down. Just like the Irish, they hate us already. Mata Koreans hate us. No, 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 no,